Well, I'm Pastor Jim, and it's really great to have each of you here on this snowy April day. Uh, a little bit of a surprise for us all, but it's going to melt away this afternoon, I think, so we're good. Uh, this week is Holy Week. This is Palm Sunday today, uh, the Sunday where Jesus, five days before good, the first Good Friday when he would give his life, Jesus came presenting himself, riding into Jerusalem. The people took palm branches they used them to worship, and they waved, and they celebrated Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King coming into the city. And then, five days later, on Good Friday, Jesus sacrificed himself for the redemption of all humanity, including you and I. But Jesus was looking forward, not, looking toward not only the suffering of Good Friday, not only toward the cross, Jesus was also intent upon something else that would happen at the end of that week, actually on the first day of the next week. Because early on the morning of that third day, Jesus Christ rose from the dead and he conquered death. And he did that not just to prove that he was God, which it did do, but he did that to demonstrate he conquered it for you. Everything that's death-like and death itself Jesus conquered that so that you could find life in him today and tomorrow and forever. And so that's Holy Week. And let's enter into Holy Week with a time of refocusing our hearts and our minds upon this very foundation of our faith. It rests upon Jesus Christ. He's the foundation and there is no other. Now, this great message that took place and unfolded during Holy Week, uh, that message began to spread throughout the nations of the world. And we're in a series right now called A New Thing. It's the story of that first church and how that first church, the story of how it over 40 years or so spread amazingly across, uh, it broke out of Palestine, Jerusalem, it broke out into the nations of the world and one of the great missionaries, the greatest missionary who's ever lived, uh, the story, his story is told in the book of Acts. He made three great missionary journeys into the world. His name, the Apostle Paul. And uh, so we're going to be looking at another, we're going to be looking at that third missionary journey that the Apostle Paul took this morning in, cha in Acts chapters 18 through 21. Now, I want to start this way. Uh, Jill and I flew to Seattle just a couple weeks ago, my son and wife and our two youngest grandkids live out there. We went out because Ada had a star role in Mary Poppins. And there should be a, yeah, there's Ada. She was Jane in Mary Poppins. Now, I'm up here uh, swelling with pride right now. And I, every opportunity I get to get my grandkids up on that screen, I take it. And then uh, Artie, uh, Artie, Archie was getting into t-ball. Uh, and uh, now I love these two little guys, and I spent a lot of time with them when I was out there, and it was hard to come back. But, uh, but, I, but this, you know, the point I'm trying to make is this, that uh, Seattle is a place I love to go, and you can see why. And it's 1,730 miles to get there. Jill and I can't drive that distance, or we could, but we're, no, we're not prone to do that. We flew. It took us four and a half hours. We fly southwest. It was a smooth, straight shot. 
complete with all the cookies and the coffee that they come and serve you in flight, which I look forward to. I really do. And then, but the seats are a little tight. It's a little claustrophobic in that flying tube, but I try to turn my attention elsewhere. Uh, overall, it's just a pretty comfortable and really a pretty amazing way, all this modern way of travel, isn't it? I wouldn't want to go back to the covered wagons, okay, or to foot. Now, contrast that with the miles that the Apostle Paul covered on his third missionary journey. It took him four years from the years 54 to 58 AD, and instead of four hours to cover all this territory, he traveled 2,500 miles, uh, uh, 1,190 of them were by sea, and 1,325 were by foot on land. And I was imagining as I was thinking about this, what if Paul had been wearing a Fitbit? He, okay, he would have broke all records. I could, never, I could never have caught him on that. Well, here I have a map that shows the ground that he covered. And uh, quickly, this will give you just a basic idea. What he did was he made a huge circle. He started in Syria up in Antioch. He traveled through what today would be called Turkey, And then he made his way across the Aegean Sea into what today would be called Greece. He made his way into Europe for the first time ever. The message of Christ came to Europe and spread west. And it's changed your life and mine, in fact. And then he swung, and then he visited, he went south into the southern part of Greece. And then he made his way back, mostly by sea this time, across the Mediterranean, all the way back to Jerusalem. And as I said, it took him four years to do it. Now, Uh, He stopped in many, many cities all along the way on this journey, and in many of those places, on top of just the discomforts of ancient travel, Paul subjected himself to extreme danger and pain, even possible death several times, from people who clashed with what he had to say, because the message that he was sharing is that Jesus is God, he is humanity's one and only Savior who died bearing our sins to provide the, only, the one and only way that any human being can really come to know the true God, and he taught this among cities that were full of pagan gods. Now, many people, as he went along through these cities, they embraced this, they came to faith in Christ, and churches were popping up all along this map, this map route. It was an amazing journey. But there were many who flat out rejected this message because it upset the religious beliefs, it upset philosophies, it upset unjust social prejudicial structures that were embedded in these cultures because the message of Paul was that Jesus loves everybody equally. It's an, equal, it's an equal playing ground. And all these structures are unfair. And so Paul gives us a list of the kinds of sufferings he went through. I just want us to get a picture of this. Let me read it for you, 2 Corinthians chapter 11. In fact, Cor- Corinth was one of the places he visited on this second journey. Later, he wrote back about his sufferings. I want you to get this. Uh, he says this, I have been put in prison... I've been whipped times without number. I faced death again and again. Five different times the Jewish leaders gave me 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. 
Three times I was shipwrecked. Once I spent a whole night and a day adrift in the sea, I'm assuming hanging on to a, a log. I have traveled on many journeys. I have faced danger from rivers, from robbers. I have faced danger from my own people, the Jews, as well as from the Gentiles. I have faced danger in the cities, in the deserts, on the seas. I have faced danger from men who claim to be believers but aren't. I have worked hard and long, enduring many sleepless nights. I have been hungry and thirsty. I have often gone without food. I have shivered in the cold without enough clothing to keep me warm. And then besides all of this, I have the daily burden of my concern for all the churches. So uh, when I read that, you know who the person, the person who came to my mind was Chuck Norris, <laughs> okay? Chuck Norris is known for being this superhuman guy. He, there's nothing that can hold him down. Well, the Apostle Paul was the ancient Chuck Norris, I guess. And, but anyway, why did Paul do this? Why did he put him through this stuff? What human being would do that? Well, this question is answered in one very emotional farewell meeting that Paul had with the elders, the leaders of the church up in Ephesus, and it's described word by word by the, his traveling historian companion, Luke, who authors the whole book of Acts. Luke was with, Mark, or with uh, Paul on this part of the journey. And so Luke was right there. He gives us word for word. So Paul, when they got, when they got to the port of Miletus, and if the map's up there, uh, it's right about the center and uh, just south of Ephesus. Anyway, uh, they landed at the port of Miletus, Paul had founded that church in Ephesus and, he, Ephesus, and he had spent two years there of the four years of this journey. So he built great relationships, and he poured himself into those people to get them strong in their faith. Uh, Paul wanted to see these people, the leaders of this church, he wanted to see them one last time. And so it's here that Luke write, writes down word for word the words, the exchange that took place between Paul and the leaders from Elder. And, and it also is going to show us the motivation that was in Paul's heart, why he was so unstoppable when it came to taking this message of Jesus to the world. So let me read from Acts chapter 20. This is what Luke says, describing the meeting. He says, but when we landed at Miletus, Paul sent a message to the elders of the church at Ephesus asking them to come and meet him. When they arrived, he declared, you know that from the first day I set foot in the province of Asia until now, I have done the Lord's work humbly and with many tears. I have endured the trials that came to me from the, riot, from the plots of the Jews. I have never shrank back from telling you what you needed to hear, either publicly or in your homes. I have had one message for Jews and Greeks alike, the necessity of repenting from sin and turning to God and of having faith in our Lord Jesus. And now I am bound by the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. I don't know what awaits me except that the Holy Spirit tells me in city after city that jail and suffering lie ahead. I want to stop there for a second. After all that Paul's been through, and he's out there on the Mediterranean, I would have thought maybe he would have said, you know, I think I've had enough of that. I think I've done enough for the Lord now. I think I'm just going to find a nice resort place here in the Mediterranean and, and sort of hang out there. 
But that isn't what Paul does. Listen to what he says in verse 24. He says, but my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned me by the Lord Jesus. And what is that work? The work of telling others about the good news of the wonderful grace of God. And now the meeting between Paul and the elders, it really gets emotional. And if you'd have been there, you'd have probably got choked up just like they do. This is what goes, this is what happens next. Paul says, and now I know that none of you whom I have preached the kingdom of God to will ever see me again. I declare today that I have been faithful. If anyone suffers from eternal death, it is not my fault. For I didn't shrink from declaring all that God wants you to know. And then he says this to the elders. He says, guard yourselves and guard God's people. Feed and shepherd God's flock, his church. Why is that? Paul's next statement is very powerful. And I want you to know that over the years, I have turned to Acts chapter 20, verse 28, many, many times to remind myself of what I am, my calling is as a pastor. Because Paul says this powerful statement that shook my soul many, many years ago. He says, feed and shepherd God's flock, the church. Why? Because of the price that was paid for it. Because it was purchased with his own blood. The church was purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. Oh, and, and, and this statement, over which the Holy Spirit has appointed you as leaders. You know, I was not appointed pastor of this church by the Illinois District Council Assembly of God. Yeah, they appointed me, they ordained me. But I was appointed to be a pastor of this church by the Holy Spirit. And with that comes a, such a heavy, heavy responsibility. I'm answerable to the Holy Spirit for pastoring Calvary Church. And, and that's true of every pastor. And Paul is saying that to the elders, to the pastors of that church in Ephesus, to love the church just like he did, and to understand its origins and the price that was paid for it. But then Paul says, I know that false teachers like vicious wolves will come in among you after I leave, not sparing the flock. Even some men from your own group will rise up and distort the truth in order to draw a following. Watch out. Remember the three years. Now Paul, in his, this in, 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 Paul on this journey had spent two years in Ephesus. He had spent a, a year before that on the second missionary journey. So total of three years, I was with you. My constant watch and care over you day and night and my many tears for you. And then verse 32, and now I entrust you to God and the message of his grace that is able to build you up and give you an inheritance with all those he has set apart for himself. Luke says this, when he had finished speaking, he knelt and prayed with them. They all cried as they embraced and kissed him goodbye. They were sad most of all because he had said that they would never see him again. Then they escorted him down to the ship. And Paul leaves Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem. In the middle of what Paul says, there are two core statements I believe, that describe his heart and why he did what he did and put himself through what he did. Verse number 24, 
He says, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about, and I want to underscore, the wonderful grace of God. And then verse 32, and now I, his parting words to that church, and now I entrust you to God and the message of what? I entrust you to God and the message of his grace. Because that grace is able to build you up. It's able to build your life and give you a future, an inheritance, a new start with all those that he has set apart for himself. Paul was motivated by the deep compulsion to tell other people and show other people the wonderful grace of God, the grace of Jesus that so deeply values every human being and can forgive the very worst of sins, can heal the very deepest of wounds, and as Paul says, can give a person a new future that is God's will and God's plan. So I want to define grace. How do we define that word? Because that grace is, at the, is the bedrock of Paul's ministry. It's what motivated him. How do we describe grace? Well, it comes from a Greek word pronounced charis, and the word means sweetness, fragrance, charm, beauty, loveliness, overflowing kindness, and it was, it was described as the quality which is so highly attractive in a person that it awakens in other people a deep feeling of gratitude, of feeling valued, of feeling accepted and welcomed by, by the person in whom that grace resides. The ancients would have looked at a flower and they would have said, that's an example of charis. That's, that's an example of beauty and sweetness and fragrance. You know, and I believe a good example of grace today is what many would consider the most fragrant of all flowers. And that's the rose. And that's why I have a few roses up here today. Let me pick one out. Mm, it's nice. <laughs> it's good. Uh, what makes a rose smell like it does? Well, I am going to give a simple answer, although I think it's a profound one. It's just the nature of being a rose. A rose smell and is fragrant because that's its nature. And if I were to take this rose and pass it around to everybody in this room and everybody in, this, in the village of Lamont and everybody on this planet, if I pass this rose around, it would, without discrimination, give off the same fragrance to every human being. Uh, it would not, if I handed it from person to person, it would not uh, pull in its petals and pull back its fragrance because the nature of this rose is just to produce this great fragrance that is so attractive to people. This, this is a good description of what the Apostle John, how, how he described the nature of Jesus. This is what he says about the nature of Jesus. The word, that is, Jesus became flesh, he became human, and he made his dwelling among us. The literal Greek word there, it's the idea of pitching your tent. Jesus, when he came into the world, he 
pitched his tent right in our neighborhood, okay, uh, to live among us. He became human. And then John says, we have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son of God who came to us from the eternal Father. And what was that glory that they saw? What was that beauty they saw in Jesus? He describes it. And in, and in this order, I always like to say, when we saw Jesus, he was full of grace. He was full of grace and truth. And I always say in that order because if we try to bring truth to people first and, we don't have, and it's not being shared with grace, it's not going to work. Grace paves the heart for truth. Jesus came that way. And then it's repeated three verses later by John. He says, for the law which represents the very perfection of God, was given through Moses. It's reflected in the Ten Commandments. But grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And we need that grace that comes to us through Jesus Christ because none of us can live up to the law, <laughs> okay? I'm grateful that God is perfect and has a perfect law, aren't you? I wouldn't want to live in a universe where there was a God who was less than perfect running it. I mean, that would, that would be a monster God, okay? I want a perfect God who has no sin. Uh, and Moses, Moses represents that in the law, the Old Testament, the Ten Commandments. But we found out we can't live up to it. We messed up. And so Jesus came into the world offering us grace to, re to redeem us and re repair that problem. And uh, that's what Paul is... And so now... Because Paul, when Paul came to know Jesus, here's what happened. The nature of Jesus entered into his life. And so not only does this rose represent the grace of Je that was in Jesus' life, this rose represents the grace that now was in Paul's life. Because Jesus came into his life. P grace was the primary attitude that drove the Apostle Paul through everything he went through for the sake of sharing it with people. Now, let me say this about grace. Grace is realizing that every person is made by God in his image. Grace is valuing every human being. Grace is Jesus in me helping me see Jesus in that other person. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 25 about every human being? He says, if you serve any human being on this planet, you're serving me. Why is that? Because Jesus is their maker, and Jesus identifies with every human being that you meet wherever we go. And so... Now, human kindness is great, but human kindness is very selective. We're kind to people who are sort of like us and have, share our common interests. We're kind, you know, there's a lot of kindness there. We're kind to people that we sense keep our standards. But we be, can become cold, human kindness can become very cold and dismissive and condescending and hurtful to those that we sense, eh, they're not like us, they don't share my values, etc. 
But you know what? Grace is not selective. Not at all. And this rose also illustrates, illustrates how Paul could endure all that he did. It goes back to what we celebrated Holy Week. Because what happened on Good Friday? Well, here's an illustration. On Good Friday, this Jesus who was fragrant and filled with the grace of God, uh, if we represent that by a rose, uh, that was crushed. That rose got crushed. So I'm going to, if I step on this rose and, and just grind it into the floor and crush it, which I'm going to do, I'm, I wouldn't want to normally do this to a rose, but I'm going to do it right now. I'm just going to grind it into the floor. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up. Okay, that's the crucifixion. That's Jesus on the cross, bearing the weight of our sin. It crushed him. But when you pick up a crushed rose, you know what it smells like? It still smells like a rose. In fact, when you crush a rose, it even spreads its fragrance even more. So as Paul goes around the Mediterranean world, himself getting crushed and stepped on and mistreated and abused because he loves the very people that are doing it to him so much. He gets crushed. What, what's coming out of Paul's life? More grace. More grace. He couldn't do that by the power of his own human kindness. Nobody can. Human kindness can't even get close to that. But you know what? When the nature of Jesus Christ enters into a person's life, it's transformative. And we see people in a completely different way when Jesus is in our life. It's grace. And you know what? Because Jesus was in his life and grace was in his life, Paul learned a whole new way of handling suffering in his life because he saw a purpose in it, an ultimate. He saw that it could just produce more of God's grace in his life and more character. And it does the same for us. Now, when Paul came to know Jesus, and Jesus came into his life, as I've been saying, the fragrant grace of Jesus came into his life. I'll lay that down there right now. But you know what? Before Paul knew Jesus, there was a much different odor that emanated from his life, a lot different. Uh, before Paul knew Jesus, it was the odor of judgmentalism. Paul had been one of the most judgmental people you would ever meet and in him, it was the very worst kind of judgmentalism and because it was founded upon his misuse and misunderstanding of nothing other than the Bible itself. The, the foundation of Paul's judgmental attitude when he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees was the Bible. It was the Old Testament. It was the Old Testament misunderstood and misused and misapplied. In fact, he used the Old Testament to abuse other people. Isn't it something we could even take the Holy Scriptures and abuse people with them? That's what judgmentalism does. Uh, and Paul was an expert at it by his own confession. Um, now, he, and, and you know, judgmentalism misrepresents God, his nature. 
And what it does is it spreads the stench of death instead of life. Did anyone here a couple years ago go up to the botanical gardens up on Lake Cook Road to see the blooming of the, here's the scientific name for it, I'll see if I can pronounce it, Amorphophilus titanium plant. In other words, known much less dignified and scientific, otherwise known as the stinky plant. <laughs> okay. okay, here's the picture of the stinky plant. The stinky plant grows to eight feet tall, but the most notable thing about it, and it's also called a corpse flower, is a putrid smell like rotting flesh. It smells like death. And the plant also in some way generates heat, which causes it to spread that odor even further. I, I'm sure many of you have planted roses in your garden. I, I would be surprised if there's anybody in this room that ever planted one of these <laughs> in, your, in your front yard, okay? All right. Judgmentalism is the stinky plant of religion. It is the worst kind of pride. Religious judgmentalism is the very worst kind of pride because it's spiritual pride. And it's religious pride that thinks it's representing God when it's really representing simply one's own self-righteousness, which is a deadly disease that kills grace in Christians. And self-righteousness, really, what it is, it, it, it takes a false measuring tool by which, and holds it up to other people. And, and judgmentalism, when you're being measured by judgmentalism, it's never, you're never going to get measured accurately <laughs> because the whole person holding that stick is always going to be looking down at you because it's a comparison game. And sometimes, I said, the most deadly disease that can infiltrate even our Christian lives sometimes and kill grace is a judgmental attitude. Because, it, it, and Paul dealt with this many, many times in, in these New Testament churches. And what happens in judgmentalism that uh, we can look down on a person because of their past, because of their brokenness, because of their apparent failure, and then stand in judgment over them. Now, most often, because we're spiritual, we'll never say it to their face. But nonetheless, we can convey it in our attitudes, we can put a person off, we can turn them away, we can patronize, we can have this like condescending form of kindness which is so phony and fake because it's visible to a broken person. And it damages them all the more because that kind of damage is coming from a person who bears the name Jesus or it's coming from a church that bears the name of Jesus. And it can just shred to pieces a person who comes looking for hope. And I'm just saying this, and I'm saying it to myself too. I'm saying it because we're all susceptible to this disease. But grace sees people on equal ground. Remember that woman in adultery that was thrown down on the ground in front of Jesus with all the other religious people standing above her, holding their stones, waiting for the signal from Jesus, hey, stone her. What did Jesus do? I, I think this is a beautiful picture of grace. The only other one that got down on the ground that day was Jesus. He got right down on the ground beside that woman on her level. Imagine this, the God of the universe, the God of the universe 
on the ground with this woman who had sin in her life and all the other people judging her, ready to condemn her, give her no redemption, no way out. But Jesus offered her grace. He offered her a new start. Was Jesus compromising the, the, the perfect holiness of God, the, perfect, the perfection of the law of God? Was he compromising that by getting down on the ground with this woman? Absolutely not. He said, go and sin no more. He held, he held to truth, but it came packaged with grace. And there, there is the posture of the church on this planet. There is the posture of every follower of Jesus Christ, wherever we are, with whatever people we are. There's our posture. We kneel with them, and we look across. We don't look down. We look across, just like Jesus did. That's what motivated the Apostle Paul, who at one time was so selective in the people he spent time with, and and now he saw himself on level ground with all humanity, so that they could be attracted by the grace of Jesus. Now, I have a dozen roses here, and I brought a whole bouquet instead of just one because I want to illustrate that we as a church family, this is what we're called to be in our community. We're called to be a bouquet of roses. We're called to be a garden of roses in the community, emanating giving out the fragrance of Jesus to everyone around us. So a rose is fragrant to all. And, and let, me, let me, I was going to scroll what I said a moment ago, <laughs> that I've sometimes seen, and, and we know, uh, I've, I've talked with people that have come from churches where they were wounded, they got hurt, bad. They didn't feel received. Uh, and I think a lot of times that happens unaware. I, I don't think Christians intentionally do that. I think we sometimes are unaware uh, that we might hold a person's past against a fellow worshiper or, but, or hold people at arm's length and not really receive into fellowship, keep at a distance, be condescendingly nice. Maybe, maybe there's a person who comes to church, I think this is common, who's had a divorce in their background. And they may feel like a failure. And they may get the sense in that church, and sometimes they can be reading through their own filter that, man, everybody's viewing me as a failure because of what my, my marriage failed. But you know what? We as Christians, we don't know the whole story. We don't know the story behind that. Our role is pure grace. Pure grace. Receive. Care. Encourage. Or a person comes in who has had an addiction in their past or maybe an addiction in their present and stay away a little bit no no enfold receive get down on the ground with them or a person who has only recently come to faith and doesn't know doesn't know all the church lingo yet or the church etiquette and it's visible but a rose is fragrant to everyone so as we go into Holy Week, I think this is a good time for us to refocus and do a spiritual checkup, me included, me at the front of the line. I, so I would say people of Calvary Church, our mission 
is exactly that of the Apostle Paul who said, my life is worth nothing to me unless I use it for finishing the work assigned to me by the Lord Jesus, the work of telling others the good news about the wonderful grace of God. Two action steps. The first one is for us who are followers of Jesus. Number one, I would just encourage us to all do a personal fragrance checkup, okay? Uh, and make sure, come before the Holy Spirit and say, Holy Spirit, is there any part of the stinky plant of a judgmental spirit in my life? If so, point it out to me and pull that out by the roots <laughs> and just fill me with your fragrance. That's for us who are followers of Jesus. The second action point is for those that are searching for God who may be here today. And here's my word to you. Here's Jesus' word to you. It's come to Jesus and receive his grace. Come and confess that, hey, I'm a sinner. I've blown it, Lord. I'm imperfect. I've, I've sinned. And I need your forgiveness. And you know what? Jesus is here today to just receive you if you pray that prayer and give you the forgiveness from his heart. Forgive you of all your sins. And more than that, he will then come into your life, bringing his own nature with him. And that will become the foundation of your life beginning to change, finding new meaning and new purpose in your life that you never knew existed, but God has known it all the time. And you're going to find a new hunger for God, a new desire, and a new, a new way of viewing people because you've invited Jesus Christ to come into your life. And if you've never done that before, I want to encourage you you can do that where you sit this morning by just opening up your heart to Jesus right now and saying, Jesus, I, I ask you to come into my life and be my Savior. You pray that prayer, he will answer that prayer. And you'll begin to know him experientially. Not just, not just some academic thing we're talking about today. This is an experience. It's the most profound experience in human life is to know Jesus experience Jesus. You can experience him if you, and, and live with him the rest of your days and into eternity. So I encourage you to take that step if you've never done it. Uh, do that today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you today for your presence. We thank you, Lord, for this wonderful message of grace, Lord. And thank you, Lord, for the grace that is present in this church, Lord. Thank you so much for that. And Lord, our prayer is simply, let there be more and more in me, in all of us, Lord. Let that grace just flow out of our lives. Heavenly Father, uh, we want to glorify Jesus, and we want to have that same compulsion to even face sufferings like Paul had, knowing that if we can face them trusting you, that Lord, you're going to even bring more grace into our lives, just like that crushed rose. It's going to, it's going to produce even more fragrance. So, Lord, help us to take hold of this wonderful message of grace. And we give you thanks. We give you praise for this. And we pray these things in Jesus' great, his mighty name. Amen. Amen. Amen.